0: We don't always sing another hymn before the sermon, but this this last hymn, Speak, O Lord, which is inserted in your bulletin, is uh, about the Lord uh, speaking to us from his word. So it's appropriate for us to sing it now and make it our prayer as we open God's word in a moment. Let's sing together. in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, to work our way through this gospel, start one of the latter chapters today. We'll look this morning at verses 1 to 16 of this chapter. You know, you always ought to beware, beware of religion that's always comfortable, Everyone's religious, but some of that religion is simply a spiritual pacifier, comforting thoughts which make us feel good, but never challenge what we do or how we think. True religion, however, that which is really from God, cuts right across our thoughts and our activities and measures them by God's absolute standards our text this morning is a passage which makes us feel uncomfortable with jesus this is one of those statements about god's kingdom which shows how different it is from that which we take for granted concerning the kingdoms of this world and if we're not careful concerning the church This is one of those passages which tempts us to to rebel and reject God's ways, rather than to let him be God and submit ourselves to what he has to say. This is not an easy text, I don't think. Let me read it. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. Jesus is speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went on early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, that uh, would be about nine o'clock in the morning, he went on, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever's right. And so they went. He went again about the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, five o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them all their wages, beginning with the last one, hired, and on down to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received one denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received one denarius, When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But the landowner answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give a man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Two truths I want you to hear from this passage. The first is this God requires obedience, but rewards according to his grace. God requires obedience, but rewards us according to his grace. Or to say it another way, obedience is not, does not earn God's favor. Obedience is mandatory, but obedience is not meritorious. There's no merit to our obedience. Now we naturally tend to set obedience and grace in opposition to one another. And we tend to believe more strongly in one or the other. Some only want to talk about God's grace. I mean, the Bible clearly says we are saved by grace, not works. It is a gift of God. And so some say, therefore, it doesn't matter what you do. They think any idea that we must obey, or that we are obligated to the Lord, or that God attaches conditions to his dealing with us, those are all seen by some to be a denial of God's grace. In other words, some would allow the Bible's teaching about grace to just eat up everything else the Bible might say about obedience and service. But this text says, in effect, before you get carried away with that, notice that according to Jesus' teaching in this parable, God requires Obedience. Notice that all who were rewarded labored for the landowner. No one was taken off the street and paid. All were sent to work. As Ritterbos put it, this idea of recompense or compensation is very important in the gospel, and it would be destructive to the whole of Jesus' preaching if it were thought to be incompatible with God's gracious remission of sin. God requires obedience. Jesus says, follow me, and those who refuse to follow will not inherit the kingdom of God. We deceive ourselves if we think that God is a great Santa Claus in the sky who gives everything to everyone. No, he is a landowner who calls people to serve him, to work in his vineyard. So some make much of God's grace, but disregard his call to obey and to serve. But God requires obedient service. Most of us, however, in my opinion, have the opposite misconception. Some emphasize grace to the exclusion of labor. Some emphasize our works to the exclusion of much grace. And most of us, I think, we don't deny grace. We just tend to to turn our discipleship into a labor contract. In other words, we tend to think... If we are, that our faithful service determines the outcome. We like the notion that if you work hard, you will do well. And if you don't, you will fail. In other words, that you will get what you pay for. But here we're in danger of falling prey to our own cultural assumptions. All of those things, frankly, seem to be true concerning life in this world. You usually do have to work hard in order to acquire good things. And you do get what you pay for most of the time. But when we transfer those concepts into our relationship with God, we begin to think that there is, here's a key word in all this, there is merit in our service. That at least in part we earn eternal life. That God owes us certain rewards based on what we've done. And we subtly begin to trust ourselves... Trust how we are doing for our right standing before God. But our text tells us quite a different story. Though the landowner required service from all of his employees, he rewarded them according to his grace, not according to their labor. Again, Dr. Ridenboss writes about this. The idea of recompense is very important in the gospel. But on the other hand, it, perfectly, it is perfectly clear that in Jesus' preaching, salvation is not based on human merit and right, but on the divine remission of sins and grace. Sharing in the salvation of the kingdom is entirely... A matter of God's gracious action and not human claims. This is the point of the whole parable. Much to the dismay of those who rest in the value of how much they've served the Lord, the reward was given according to God's grace, the landowner's grace, not according to their labor, not according to their merit, not according to what they earn. This is not a half and a half relationship, half grace and half works. That's not true. No, it's all grace, but grace demands a grateful response. So God requires obedience, but he rewards us according to his grace. Our service is mandatory, but it's not meritorious. Obedience. Does not earn us God's favor. Keith Ewing paraphrased this clearly what Jesus would say to us in his song that goes like this. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what I've done for you. I did it all when I was dying. This morning I call you to follow Jesus. You cannot earn his favor. You will only perish trying. You are not good enough. I don't care how confident you are. You are not really self-sufficient. If you trust in yourself, you will only get what you earn. God's condemnation because of your sinful thoughts and deeds. Only in Jesus will you find forgiveness and eternal life. He died to pay the penalty of your sin so that you you can be forgiven. He rose from the dead to give you eternal life. He came to reconcile you to God that you might know God's grace and peace. But I also warn you that you must come ready to serve. God is not offering you new life so you can go on serving yourself. He rescues us that we might serve him. God requires obedience, service. But he saves us by his grace, not by our works. That's the first truth. Then There's a second truth to consider here. And it's a simple one. It goes like this. God calls us. To glory in His grace. God calls us to glory in His grace. These days, it seems as though all that matters is our feelings and our sensitivity to other people's feelings. I often wonder do the facts matter at all to anyone? (laughs) Does anyone even care what actually happened? Or is the only reality what people feel about what they imagined happened? God doesn't play that game with us. He tells us what he has done and what he is doing. He tells us the facts. That's the first point. God requires obedience, but he rewards us according to his grace. Now we learn how God works. We learn what he does. Now he goes to instruct us of how we ought to feel about that how we ought to respond to that, and that's our second point. Glory, then, in my grace, he says. God calls us to glory in his grace. At first, the teaching of this parable, frankly, seems unfair to us. How can it be fair? For some one who worked all day apparently from six to six, to get the same pay as someone who worked only from five to six, one hour. Grace doesn't seem fair, does it? How can it be fair for the first to be last and the last to be first? That's what Jesus says here. He says it actually twice. This whole passage is bracketed by that. In in, in chapter 19, the last verse, and then in verse 16, the last verse of our text, both say the same thing, the last will be first and the first will be last. So is that fair? For someone who has climbed to the top to be replaced by someone who's been sitting on the bottom? This is why we got labor unions. This is why we get equal opportunity employment rules to protect against such unfair labor practices. Grace doesn't seem fair. This parable doesn't seem fair. But the same unfair things are present among God's people throughout the centuries. In the Old Testament, God chose David, a farm boy, who loved Jesus, to be Israel's next king. Not the king, not the prince. And Saul, the mighty king, was enraged. How could God make this boy his equal? Saul was so angry, he tried to kill David. Later, Jesus came into the world. And when he came, and we read about his ministry in the Gospels, we see Jesus bypassing the learned and pious scribes and Pharisees and offering his kingdom to prostitutes and public racketeers. How could God allow that? No way could such a person be God's Messiah, could he? So these holy men... The Jewish leaders handed him over to the Romans to have him crucified. And then when the gospel of Jesus rising from the dead began to go out into the world, who did it go to? Well, primarily, it was the Gentiles who believed and received the gospel, not the Jews to accept the Messiah, Jesus. How could that be right? The Jews were God's people who lived according to God's law. The Gentiles were pagans. The Jews were so angry about this, they tried to kill the apostles and decimate the church. Grace didn't seem fair. And even today, when new churches start up, often down the street around the corner from the old established First Church, the First Church congregation is likely not thanking God for what he's doing in their community. They might be heard saying, wow, we've been here 100 years. We have the best organ in the state. Who are these young upstarts? What do they think they're doing with their guitars and their internet outreach? It doesn't seem fair. I actually know of one case where a group of young people started up a new church and it grew and it prospered and then they wanted to come to the old church and be received into the same denomination as the old first church. And the leaders of that church said, no way. And they blocked the door. They would not let them in. Doesn't seem fair. Oh, but it's not just organizations that feel the inequity. It's sometimes very personal. What happens when God reclaims a wretched sinner and then gives him leadership gifts and prospers his witness? That doesn't seem fair. People could be heard saying, why, he shouldn't be visible in the church after what he's done. There are lots of faithful old-timers who are way ahead of him in the line. But God has often seemed fit to reclaim public sinners. We even know some of their names. There's Moses, the murderer. There's Samson, the multiple adulterer. Serial adulterer, I guess we would say. There's David, the murdering adulterer. There's Matthew, the state-sponsored tax-collecting thief. There's Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee, who persecuted and tried to kill off the Christians. There's Augustine, the playboy. There's John Newton, the slave trader. There's Chuck Colson, the corrupt public servant, just to name the few that come to mind. How could it be fair for God's people to have even ever heard the name of such evil men? Grace doesn't seem fair. But folks, the reason it doesn't seem fair is that we're still caught in thinking of grace as a labor contract. But if our relationship to God was simply a labor contract, have you ever realized that none of us would ever have right standing before God? None of us would ever enter God's kingdom None of us would ever have eternal life. We fail to see this because we're always comparing ourselves with others just like us rather than judging ourselves by God's righteous standard. But what God demands is perfect obedience to his holy law. Not just outward compliance that everybody can see, but obedience to the secret, in the secret thoughts and intentions of our heart, which God sees, but we don't see in each other. And folks, not one of us has met that standard. Not one of us. We have all fallen short. God says that, I didn't say that. We all deserve the penalty of spiritual death. For we all have offended God himself. Only when we finally understand that God does not grade on the curve, but requires absolute holiness, only then can it become clear that there's no possibility of us earning eternal life. It must be given as grace. An undeserved free gift earned by Jesus. Tom Wright says it really well in his treatment of this text. He says, God's grace, in short, is not the sort of thing you can bargain with or try to store up. It's not the sort of thing that one person can have a lot of and someone else have only a little. The point of the story is that what people get from having served God and his kingdom is not actually a wage at all, not strictly a reward for work done. God does not make contracts with us as if we could negotiate a better deal. God makes a covenant in which He promises us everything and asks everything from us. Let me read that again. God does not make contracts with us as if we could bargain or negotiate a better deal. He makes a covenant in which he promises us everything and asks of us everything in return. So when he keeps his promises... He's not rewarding our efforts. He's doing what comes naturally to his overflowingly, generous, gracious nature. It's grace. So what should be our response? Glory in his grace. It's that simple. We're to glory in his grace. What does that mean, to glory? I look for another word in my thesaurus. i found lots of words. To glory means to delight, rejoice, celebrate, enjoy, boast, or revel in. Okay, so let me say it some other ways. Not just glory in his grace. How about we delight in grace that reclaims sinners. Sinners. We rejoice when a person who couldn't get a job all day long. That was the story here. Why aren't you working? I can't get anybody to hire me. Is hired and paid, though he could only work an hour. That's grace. We rejoice in it. We celebrate and shout for joy when God liberates people from the bondage of sin and makes them our brothers and sisters and fellow laborers. And we enjoy being part of a church that is the company of the forgiven. Indeed, we boast of the greatness of God's grace that we've witnessed. We boast even when those recipients of grace outstrip us, surpass us, rise above us. You might say we just revel in God's grace. We take pleasure in it. We wallow in the sweetness of grace. Let me search earth this for more ways to say it, but you'll run out of words. Jesus' disciples simply glory in God's grace. No much ink's been spilled trying to define how God's salvation Which is all of grace, and at the same time, absolutely requires obedience and service. Well, you don't have to be able to resolve all the apparent contradictions to affirm this. While God requires obedience, and He does, He rewards us according to His grace. So, how do we handle such grace? What should our attitude be? That's not fair. That's not right. Oh, no. We glory. We glory in God's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us sometimes when we see you blessing people that we don't think are worthy. And so we realize, Lord, that you've done us great favor when you show us How unworthy we are. For we're totally dependent upon your grace, Lord. We don't have anything else. And if you're gracious enough to forgive and save us, Lord, make us quick to glory in your grace to others. It doesn't come easy to us, Lord, it doesn't come natural. We always want to compare ourselves with others and find ourselves better than others. Teach us, Lord, lest we go astray and in our self-righteousness fail to enter your rest, as the psalm warns us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there.